You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Bob Litterman, who is the founder of Kepos Capital, former head of risk management at Goldman Sachs, and also the author of this book, or editor of this book, but author of a big chunk of it, called Modern Investment Management. Now, this book, Bob, I mean, this is, I think it came out about 20 years ago. I remember when it came out, and, you know, it really summarized the state of the art at the time for large institutional investors. Now, I work a lot with these large institutional investors like pension funds, and their biggest issue is capital allocation. And they have to think about planning for the long haul, right? And the long haul means the long haul, right? These states, they plan on being in business, not just 10 years from now, but hundreds of years from now. And so they have to have these very long-term horizons. And so they have to think about all sorts of things. They think about all sorts of risks, including things like climate risk. And you've been spending the last decade or so of your life focused on the risks of climate so I thought today what we'd do is we'd talk in general about risk at risk management and how this academic finance, because you're really someone who sits on the border between academics and practice, how academic finance thinks about risk management, and in particular, how it thinks about this risk that everyone refers to as climate risk. So I guess, Bob, maybe the first thing we can do to start off is, you know, in your early days, it was really when CAPM started to take over. I mean, you, you joined Fisher Black at MIT at, at Goldman Sachs. And, and this was like a pivotal moment. I mean, it was a moment in time when modern portfolio theory was being absorbed as the dogma in institutional finance. And I was wondering if you could talk about how is it that this area of academics, which is very abstract, very theoretical, began to become something very practical and useful. It's great to be with you, Greg. Thank you. And thanks for that nice introduction. Yeah, when I came to Goldman Sachs, Fisher was already there. I, I had met Fisher before, actually, when I was a graduate student. He came to Minnesota and gave a talk on rational expectations, which was a, a hot topic at Minnesota in those days. And then later, we overlapped at MIT when I was teaching there and he was teaching there. And then Goldman Sachs hired Fisher as one of the first PhDs on Wall Street. He was known as a rocket scientist. And I came to Goldman a couple of years after Fisher and he interviewed me and I got hired and we started working together. And there were an awful lot of really interesting problems to be dealt with. As you say, it was sort of a time when academic finance was just starting to make inroads in Wall Street. And Fisher at that time was head of the equity research group. And at Goldman Sachs, we were building up our fixed income research capabilities. The fixed income powerhouse on Wall Street was Solomon Brothers in those days. And Goldman was trying to quickly build up its quantitative capabilities in fixed income in order to compete with Solomon Brothers. And those were the days on Wall Street where you still had 
calculators, handheld calculators, doing bond math and green screens. It was a really interesting and fun time for someone like myself who came in with a quantitative background. I was not an expert in risk management. I, I showed up and uh, I had a, a bunch of quantitative tools. Actually, in retrospect, I would say my advisors were very forward-looking, among other things. One of my advisors, Tom Sargent, said, Bob, you really ought to look into these neural networks and something called genetic algorithms. They seem to be kind of interesting, which, as I'm sure you know, are kind of uh, at the heart of AI these days. But this was, you know, I don't know, 40 years ago. But one of the first things I did at Goldman was to look at the yield curve. Goldman had a trading desk, which at the time was pricing, I don't know, 100 and some bonds on the runs and off the runs, treasuries I'm talking about now. And so all full faith and credit of the U.S. government. And if you lined them up by maturity, they formed a pretty smooth curve, but not perfectly smooth. So you could look for which bonds were a little bit rich or which were a little bit cheap relative to the other bonds. And we used to call that fitting cubic splines. And so one question was, you know, how much curvature do you need? You don't want to fit every bond perfectly, obviously, but you want to have enough curvature that you can fit. I had fun playing with the different locations of knot points and the number of derivatives that you want to match and how much curvature and where do you put it and how well does it do then in predicting the returns on bonds? And that was the kind of thing. That was one of the early exercises. And another one was when you had a fitted yield curve, how did you price the embedded option in a corporate bond, let's say, or a treasury, either one that had a call option? What was it worth? And so, you know, we started uh, using Fisher had a uh, yield curve model, even though he was in equity research. He had recently built a yield curve model for pricing options. So we were using something that was called Black Derman Toy yield curve model. And, and the black was, of course, Fisher Black. And I, I could go on and on. It was a fun time for me. It was like being a kid in a candy store. There were just so many interesting problems. In fact, that fitting the yield curve was designed, obviously, to find rich and cheap bonds. And the desk just thought that was great. And I thought, okay, it's pretty easy to add value here. All you have to do is come up with a fitted curve. Well, look, the subtitle of your textbook, Modern Investment Management, is an equilibrium approach. And, you know, what, what I find fascinating is how theory sort of describes the world as it should be, but then it kind of shapes the world, right? There's this feedback loop. So if you think about the Black-Scholes pricing theorem, it said, this is how it should be priced in equilibrium. And then we, we saw reality did not resemble equilibrium. It wasn't describing the pricing. It was saying what the pricing should be. And then the pricing that we saw empirically began to resemble what the model said it should. And, and CAPM is one of these things. I just got through teaching my core finance course at, at Stanford. And the CAPM theory says that everybody should hold this universal bundle of assets. But when we look out in the world, we see that not a lot of people do, right? Although way more people do now than 30, 40 years ago, right? Right. And no, you're absolutely right. I remember on those early days of asset allocation and thinking about it, you know, the big anomaly in those days was that everyone held a portfolio that was dominated by domestic securities, the home bias, we used to call it, which was huge. The average 
U.S. investor held 90% of their assets domestically. And similarly in Japan or China or wherever you went, Europe. And it seemed, well, you could be much better off by diversifying. And yeah, I mean, I mean, it was, that's the theory and you could demonstrate it and talk to people about it. And I thought this is pretty simple here on Wall Street to add value. All you have to do is talk about diversification. I, it, one could make a career about this, but you know what? People did respond and people changed and they started to diversify. And, you know, so the, the benefit of diversification became lower and lower over time. And there are a lot of things like that, that there are ultimately forces that push you toward equilibrium. In this case, getting a higher return at the same level of risk or lower risk. And so that was a first order benefit. And then once you address that, then there's other benefits. Fisher was very interested in the benefit of currency hedging, for instance. And he wrote a paper about how much of your foreign currency would you hedge in equilibrium? It was kind of an extension of the domestic cap M, which others had written about extensions, but Fisher thought this was really cool because if you added currency risk and then thought about how much of that should you hedge, you came up with what he called universal hedging. Everyone in the world would hedge the same fraction of their foreign currency risk. It was kind of a, a really interesting and beautiful result required a few sets of assumptions that might not be true, but then also you could relax those assumptions and play with the model and, and see what would happen. Universal hedging was a very interesting and very academic paper. In fact, Fisher and I, my, my boss, he asked me to build an asset allocation model and suggested that I talk to Fisher. I was pretty new at this game, trying to figure out what an asset allocation model was supposed to do. And I saw Fisher's paper about universal hedging. And I just thought, okay, that, that sounds interesting. But I didn't even realize or think that it had anything to do with the problem, asset allocation. I, I went to talk to Fisher and he said, well, you know, take a look at this paper and see if you think that it can be helpful. And, and sure enough, it was very helpful. So even though it was, it seemed like a purely academic idea, but you put it into a model and you see what happens. And for us, it turned out that it provided the key to getting reasonable asset allocations. We were both very surprised. I said to Fisher, you'd be amazed how well this works. And he was just like, well. When you're talking to the folks who manage these big pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and so forth, one thing you'll typically do is walk them through an optimizer, right? And so you'll say, okay, you've got all these different asset classes. And, you know, you can posit some expected returns and some standard deviations and some correlations. And then let's figure out what the range of possible portfolios are and pick an optimum. But, you know, when you do this, you, you get these ridiculous things, right? And, and they don't resemble the, the market bundle at all, right? In theory, they should, but they don't. No, no, they no, They look crazy. And especially if you don't put constraints on them. I remember playing with this, you know, asset allocation model and thinking there, there's something wrong here. This, I didn't put any constraints. I just put our economist forecast for currencies and bonds. This was kind of fixed income focused. And these are highly correlated assets. So 
I hadn't really thought much about it, but you put in, I think it was 10 different countries with nine currencies and 10 bonds, and you got 19 pretty highly correlated assets and a very badly behaved covariance matrix. And so you put in these forecasts from the economists and you get, you know, go long six times this and short five times that and not 5% and 6%, you know, huge, crazy portfolios because the model doesn't see them as particularly risky. It can find a linear combination of assets that has high return and very little risk. And then you change the expected return assumptions a little bit. So let's say our economist thinks Canadian yields are going to be, I don't know, 5% in three years. And you say, no, no, let's try 5.05%. Obviously, well within the margin of error for a forecast out that far. Well, all of a sudden the model does something completely different. And you go, what? That makes no sense. How can I use such a model? So then you end up putting all these constraints in. And so you're up against the constraints and you say, what, what value is that? And how do I trust this? If I know it wants to go out in left field and I'm telling it, no, you have to stay in the infield. Well, do I really trust the answer that I get? And I remember talking this over with Fisher and he was not upset by it at all. He says, yeah, that's well known. But, but it, but it seems like, I mean, the, the most, the fundamental trade-off in decision-making is when do you trust your own private view of things and when do you defer to the wisdom of the crowd? And so part of these scientific approaches is to serve as a check on your personal opinions, which we oftentimes are overconfident about. But then when you, but then when you use this scientific approach and you see something, your gut tells you, hey, that, that can't be, I can't have 90% in private equity. That seems wrong. And then it seems like you're just bringing back in gut and bringing back in intuition, which the whole point was to kind of squeeze it out to some degree, right? I would put it a little bit differently. I, I think that what the model does is it reveals to you things that you hadn't thought about. I mean, highly correlated assets is an example where, okay, you ask your economist, what's your forecast for the 10-year bond? Okay, 5%, whatever. What do you think about the five-year bond? And, oh, I don't know, maybe four and a half. I don't know. The point being that historically, there are strong correlations between these assets. They're very similar. And if you tell me something about the 10-year, that tells me a lot about the five-year that I might not even realize. And particularly when you've also got the two-year in there or the Canadian bond and the Canadian 10-year and five, you got all these bonds that are highly correlated. And the model says, if that's what you think, then here's something that's slightly better than what you thought, but it moves things all around. It's just very sensitive to these assumptions that you don't necessarily think about. If I forced you to think about it and say, wait a minute now, think about the two-year, the five-year, and the 10-year and how they're going to move together. And, and then you could start to think, oh, maybe I have to think more about that. The model kind of does that for you. And, and what we found that really made the Black Litterman so useful is that by allowing these correlations to help you out, it made you not responsible for so many assumptions. You could say, well, here's what I think about the 10-year. You tell me, what does that imply about the two-year, the five-year, the Canadian bonds, and so on? And so I think the real benefit was that you don't have to put in all these other assumptions. You can let 
the historical correlations tell you what are the most consistent things associated with what I really think is that the 10-year U.S. and the 10-year Canadian are going to move apart. Okay, that's what I want to reflect in my portfolio. And now then let the model tell me what everything else does. And, and what we discovered, which is not so surprising in retrospect, is that if you do that and, and let the model tell you what everything else is most likely to do when this particular thing happens, then you end up making a bet on that particular thing and not a bet on anything else, which is what you wanted to do. It seems in retrospect, that of course it should do that. That's what it does. But it's really hard to do that unless you have a model that takes those correlations into account appropriately, given the view that you've expressed. And when you have that machinery in front of you, then it becomes very powerful, especially if you're a quant like me and you say, well, what I really want to reflect is when A happens, it's more likely that B is going to happen. And that's what I want in the model. I don't have to make all these other extraneous assumptions. Just let me have a model that focuses on A and forecasting A and then expressing it in the assets that I have. I mean, for example, I like cheap stocks or or cheap bonds. I talked about a fitted yield curve. Okay, these bonds look cheap. These bonds look expensive. How do I put that into a model and do it optimally and not have these other exposures dominate? So that was an example of the benefits of using a quantitative model. And, and what was funny and interesting, Greg, is that, so we got all these good results and I was like, all right, let's go market this thing. And we went to the major pension funds that you talked about and we said, yeah, we've got a, a better model. And they were like, we hire out to managers. They do the management for us. Maybe you should be talking to them. And then we talked to the investment managers and they say, well, you know, we don't really trust these models. Have you ever noticed they're not very well paid? You know, we have a better one. And they're like, yeah, well, okay, but we have our own process. And so even the, certainly the fundamental managers had no interest in a quantitative model. And even the quantitative managers, they knew these models don't work very well. They'd had experience with them. And so they weren't looking for, you'd think they'd be looking for a better model. Usually not so much. They had their own process and they'd figured out something that worked. And so... To me, it was kind of disappointing. We had this model that we thought was better. We were trying to sell it. No one was really interested in buying it. And so ultimately, we started using it internally, both on the trading side, at risk management side, and asset management side. So all three of those, I started on the risk management side. And it was, for me, actually fascinating to go in and basically at every level of the firm, including the highest level, top down, what do we own overnight? And then going down the equity division and then within the equity division, the U.S. desk, and then within the U.S. desk, this, you know, it just, it kept getting, it was a big pyramid and looking at it from each particular manager's point of view and saying, all right, what do you have responsibility for? What are your risks? And so on. And we started analyzing all of the positions at every level in the firm as a portfolio. Uh, One of the things that we found was most interesting was backing out what are what we call the implied views. What are the views for which this is an optimal portfolio? And that in itself, it seems kind of straightforward and how could that be interesting? Well, 
One time I went to London and uh, and one of the, the head of the trading desk pulled me over. He said, Bob, there's something wrong with your model today. I said, oh, really, why? What's that? What's the matter? He said, well, it, it says that I'm bearish on U.S. bonds and I own 800 million U.S. bonds. <laughs> you better check. And so I thought we must not have the right data. So I went in, looked at the position. And I said, no, there's, there's the 800 million U.S. bonds. What's going on here? So I look, and at the same time, he didn't mention that they had a $3 billion position in Deutschmarks. This was before the euro. And it turned out $3 billion versus $800 million, it's a more volatile asset to begin with. So the whole issue is, what's the correlation between U.S. bonds and Deutschmark dollar? And it turned out that correlation was such that this U.S. bond position was hedging the Deutschmark dollar position. So I went back to the head of the desk and explained, well, you see, here's the problem. You only have 800 million of U.S. bonds. The risk minimizing position would actually be a billion six. And if you want to have a position that represents a bullish view, you got to go out here to maybe two and a half billion or something. I mean, this suggests that we could, for something like climate risk, we could infer what the consensus view is around climate risk by looking at current asset prices. Well, yes, you could. Yeah, no, before we get into that, I mean, I mean, I want to just highlight how we finance people have a different definition of risk than ordinary people, right? So, you know, as I tell my finance class, if, if I leave a $100 bill on, on the sidewalk in front of the, the business school, there isn't a risk that it's going to go missing. There's a certainty that it's going to go missing, right? The risk of hitting an iceberg disappears Right. Once the inevitability of hitting the iceberg kicks in with respect to climate, I mean, there's some stuff that is not a risk, right? It's, it's a direction that is relatively certain. And then the risk is really around the dispersion of possible impacts, right? I mean, do we, do we need to tease these apart? Well, it, it, yeah, there's a lot in the question that you just raised. I, first of all, most people think about risk as volatility and I mean, at the heart of what you are talking about is the fact that we don't think about risk as volatility in finance. We think of risk as covariance with marginal utility. <laughs> Already, I've probably lost half the people out there, but it means that money in good times is not as valuable as money in bad times. And then at some point, they realize that, well, no, we have to think about when does it happen early on. Bill Nordhaus, who's a friend of mine and one of the early economists focusing on climate, he said, it's unclear, but my first guess would be that if we have more pollution, it happens during good times. And so, you know, I have more damage during good times and less damage during bad times. And so if that's the case, then I guess that that pollution acts as a bit of a hedge. And, you know, I don't have as much dispersion in my marginal utility, because when times are good, it's reducing that. And when times are bad, it's actually increasing it. And it, it's not that the climate damages are increasing, but they're smaller down here and they're bigger up there. So he said, you know, maybe it actually, if you think about what we call the social cost of carbon, where we should price it, maybe it reduces it. And that observation kind of sucked me into this whole there. I was like, wait a minute, that can't be right. It was right mathematically. And what it really implies is that if economic risk is the dominant risk, and that's certainly how economists like to think about it, 
then you could think of maybe the pollution impacts of climate aren't that bad. It's if the climate impacts are actually the dominant risk. If macro fluctuations are kind of like this and climate could be a catastrophe, then there's a positive, you know, then the covariance is such that you want to price uh, climate higher. And so that meant to me, as I thought about it, you got to focus on extreme risks. This isn't about the sort of small risks. This is about what could really happen in a worst case scenario. What the climate scientists often talk about is tipping points where it becomes nonlinear and self-reinforcing. Something like the climate gets warmer, drier in the far north and the boreal forests start to burn, releasing more carbon dioxide, causing the climate to get warmer, causing more forest fires and so on, and leading to a dramatic increase in the global temperature and damages from climate. Yeah, the, you're right that finance views a risk very differently than economists traditionally had in the climate space. And, and it has important implications for how we think about it. But, but more generally, I would just say that the biggest mistake that economists often make, among others, is that they think about the expected damages. I was at a conference the other day. It was Chatham House Rule, so I won't quote who was there, but it was a senior administration official who said, I can't stand these economists who tell me that, you know, in 2100, the damages are going to be, I don't know, 5% of GDP, but GDP is going to be five times what it is today. So why are we worrying about this? And yet the climate scientists, he says, tell me we're going off a cliff. <laughs> and, you know, I, I understand what he's talking about because it is true that most economists focus on the wrong question, which is what's the expected damages? at some point in the future. The, the question really should be, what's the worst case scenario? That's a risk management question. And so economists will ask, in your climate model, what is the expected damage from an additional ton of carbon dioxide? And that's what they call the social cost of carbon. And if it's gonna cause a present discounted value, and we could talk about the discount rates, uh, that's one of the questions, but if it's gonna cause a discounted value of uh, $100, then you should be willing to pay $100 today not to put that damage into the atmosphere. Well, that's fine if we knew for sure it was $100. I remember reading an IPCC report, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, that said, you know, economists aren't very helpful on climate. They tell us that the damage from another ton could be anywhere from $2 to $200 a ton. What good is that? The answer is that's risk management, that's risk. Yes, it could be all over the place. So the right question to ask is not, what does your model say it will be $100 a ton? The right question is, at what price are you, you know, very highly confident that we're not gonna go off the cliff, you know, run into those tipping points. And that's a different question. So there could be different motivations for investors, right? So, you know, if you're an active investor and you think that the markets are underestimating the average direction of climate change, then that's going to dictate a particular investment strategy. You're going to say, okay, I'm going to invest in these sectors that will be positively impacted by climate change or underweight the ones that are going to be negatively affected. But then the other motivation is a concern around tail risk. 
And so there you want to essentially hedge some kind of. Well, okay, let's, let's be careful in talking about which risks and, and what, you know, we're trying to accomplish here. You know, you might start with an assumption that markets are efficient. That was, you know, that's the, at the center of the capital asset pricing model. And, and so all information is incorporated in prices. And what you kind of, your premise there was that I, as an investor, feel that the market doesn't realize, I think this was your premise, how bad climate change is going to be. And therefore, our movement away from fossil fuels toward a green economy is going to be faster than is built into the market prices. And I want to take advantage of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hear there are a lot of people that will pitch the pension funds on this investment thesis. Yeah. Okay. And I do as well. (laughs) This is a stranded asset story and say, hey, you know. Stranded assets. Exactly. In fact, I pioneered an investment called a stranded asset total return swap to take advantage of this. And we pioneered it at the World Wildlife Fund, where I chaired the investment committee back in 2000. 14, January of 2014, we put it on and it took it, you know, it was, we looked at it for about six months beforehand. We didn't have a lot of stranded assets in our portfolio. That was a good thing, but what little we had, we wanted to get rid of it. We defined stranded assets as coal and tar sands and later added oil exploration and production. But now to be clear, in, in order for that investment strategy to pay off, it's not just that climate change is more severe than people expect, but also it's presuming that there will be a policy response that would, right? Because there's uncertainty about the impact of carbon, but there's also uncertainty around the policy response. We can imagine a world where the hotter the world becomes, the more people spend on air conditioning. And and so the demand for carbon just goes up, right? I mean, it could have a positive feedback loop, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Right. You don't know what's built in. What do people expect? It's relatively easy to say, I want to bet against fossil fuels if my bet is that the world is going to move more quickly than people realize. And what I was going to say is that when we put on this stranded asset swap, that was the bet we were making. We were explicitly saying, we think the transition is going to be faster than people think. I don't know. It hasn't been a fast transition in my perspective. What is true is that bet did pay off for about seven years in a row, right up until the COVID collapse. Through the COVID collapse, it actually paid off very well. The market itself basically doubled, and those fossil fuel companies basically didn't change in value. So you'd say that really worked quite well. However, since the COVID pandemic hit, fossil fuels have been the best performing sector of the economy. In fact, this particular year, 2023, clean tech versus dirty tech has been a total disaster. <laughs> and as you probably know, so timing is everything. And uh, I mean, you can look at Tesla as a good example. I like to focus on Tesla. I bought my first Tesla back in 2013. Okay. I think the company was valued at $200 billion, many multiples of Ford or GM. Yeah, I think that money would have been better spent on Tesla stock than Tesla car. Yeah, I thought, this is an amazing car. I love the technology. I saw, I I drove it. I said, I got to get this car. I bought the car. I loved it. I got to buy the stock. I went out and looked and I said, oh my God, do you see where this company is valued? 200 billion. Of course, it went to 1.2 trillion at some point. I mean, but 
at the time, it just seemed crazy. And then, of course, it went back down to, I don't know where it is now, 750 billion or something. It goes up or down 50 billion a day. Ford, GM, they're valued at 40 billion each. So, you know, you get, is Tesla correctly valued now? I don't know. Was it at 1.2 trillion? It seemed awfully rich to me, but it seemed rich at 200 billion too. I, so anyway, you just, it's all a question of what's built in. And I would certainly agree with you that if you think that the world is going to move more quickly, then it's obvious what you want to bet on, but more quickly than what? And that's a question of what's already built in. And I think a lot of people expect us to move very quickly. I think it's insane how slowly we've been moving. In fact, we haven't really started, Greg. I mean, we don't price emissions in the U.S. We don't have a price on carbon. That is just absolutely insane. I mean, to put it in context, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has a bunch of economists that have been looking at the cost to society of, of burning fossil fuels. And they've estimated that there's an explicit subsidy of one point five, I think it was, trillion dollars in 2022, and an implicit subsidy because we're not pricing the particulate and the greenhouse gas. The total is seven trillion, according to them. One and a half is explicit and five and a half is implicit. And they do mention that the implicit assumes a social cost of carbon of $60 a ton. And if you use the resources for the future estimate, which is $185 a ton, the uh, EPA, by the way, just came out with an estimate of $190 a ton. But then that $7 trillion becomes $11 trillion. And of that $11 trillion, about $1 trillion, more than $1 trillion, would be in the United States alone. And a $1 trillion is a lot of money, per year, that is, of subsidies to fossil fuels. Compare that with the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, you know, the largest U.S. Uh, legislation ever. It was originally estimated to be $370 billion over 10 years. Over 10 years versus a trillion dollars in one year of subsidies for fossil fuel. My point is that we're trying to move in that direction, and we've got a hurricane-force wind going in this direction. We have not started in this transition to low energy. And the COP this year is in the UAE, which, you know, right now is its total wealth is based on fossil fuel reserves. A more rapid transition is absolutely going to reduce the wealth of the UAE. They are not going to be sympathetic to a rapid transition. Look, I mean, uh, what do you expect? Pretty much every economist agrees that when you have an externality, the optimal solution is a Pigouvian tax, right? And so pretty much every economist, if they believe that global warming is a bad thing, the proper remedy would be some kind of carbon tax, methane tax. Oh, do you know anyone, do you know anyone, Greg, who doesn't think it's a bad thing today? I mean, we've all seen it. But, but the, I mean, look, I don't want to get into a political discussion, but it, to me- No, it, we're, we're talking science. It seems like you know, even corporate leaders, folks who are at the top of BP and Exxon, they'll be like, yeah, we're all in favor. And yet we don't see it. So that's a big mystery. But supposing that we could get the political will to put in some kind of Pigouvian tax on carbon, the big question then is, all right, fine, what would the price be? And the price could be anywhere from zero to a very high number. And, and you've done a number of, of studies on this. 
And once again, it comes back to the assumptions that we make. And there are assumptions. Yeah, but, but there's a lot of uncertainty about those assumptions. And so when there's uncertainty, what do you do? You err on the side of caution. That's higher price. I think we should have a price $200 a ton. That's a good starting point. Right. So, you know, model uncertainty is a type of uncertainty that matters, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Model uncertainty matters. And so you shouldn't ask me, where does your model say you should price it? You should ask me, where would you be comfortable pricing, given the uncertainty of your model? And the answer is, well, that's a much higher number, of course. It's almost, I mean, if we got more certainty, then more certainty would almost necessarily just by itself re reduce the price of carbon, right? Because it could rule out certain extreme events. What we all hope yeah. is that we come up with a technology next year that can be deployed at scale and reduces the cost of pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere to some very low number, let's say $50 a ton. All right, great. Now we can get on with it. Let's pay for it clean up this mess and it won't cost us that much. And we're off to the races. But, you know, that's hope. That's not risk management. Risk management means being prepared for the worst case. And the worst case is there's no cheap way to pull that CO2 out of the atmosphere. And we're going to be paying a lot of money for a long time doing it because we screwed up. Well, that's why I want to get into the unique contributions that finance people can add to this. I mean, obviously, environmental scientists can speculate about the range of possible outcomes. You need actuaries to think about the range of possible damages to, say, real estate in the event that there's a rise in the sea levels and so forth. And you need some policy folks who can speculate about the range of possible political remedies and, and so forth. But finance people, they have their own unique contribution because they can say something about our intertemporal preferences and about our risk aversion preferences, right? Yeah, yeah, no, abs absolutely. Well, it's a political, well, ultimately it's a political problem. I mean, and so I think one of the places where we can make the most difference is we can suggest the right solution. And as you say, we all recognize that the right solution is putting a price on carbon. It's, I, I like to use the word incentives. Incentives are so important. And what we've got to do here is we've got to create an ability to create those incentives. Why is it hard to create those incentives? Because the pain is immediate if you put a tax on. I mean, what we're talking about here is a carbon tax, and it's easy to get people riled up about taxes. And that's what political opponents have done, not just in this country, but all over the world. I mean, you can talk about the yellow vest problem in France, but even in this country, you don't hear a lot of Democrats saying, oh, let's go put a tax on carbon, you don't hear it from either political party because voters have a relatively short horizon. Now, what we can do in finance is we can sometimes change those, turn those things around. For instance, I've talked about a, what I call a carbon linked bond. And there the idea is to institute a bond linked to the price of carbon and to create a path for that price over time to go up. So we start where we are today, let's say, and we say, all right, we're gonna get to $200 a ton in 10 years, okay? Now, what's the benefit of that? You get the revenues from borrowing today, so you can do what you want with those revenues. You can use them to subsidize solar and wind and or batteries or whatever. 
And then the pain is in the future. And you promise to in institute this carbon price. And the, and the benefit is twofold. Number one, you see it coming. People aren't going to be surprised and they're going to be able to accept that. And your entrepreneurs and your investors, they see that it's coming and therefore they're going to invest. What we really need is we need to get more investment today in these low carbon solutions, speed up the transition. And how do we get more investment? By having a higher expected return. Earlier in the conversation, we were talking about how sensitive expected investments are to expected returns. You increase the expected return a little bit, all of a sudden you get a huge increase in the amount invested. And that's what we're talking about doing. So I would say finance has some insights to share in terms of how we get to the point where people expect a high price on carbon and therefore invest in low carbon solutions today. Right. But that would require some kind of credible commitment on the part of policymakers to say it, it would, it would. And, and so that's exactly the idea, you know, where we've used this idea before is in monetary policy. 40 years ago, I was a young economist at the Fed and we were fighting inflation. This is under Volcker and, you know. Well, you're, you're a Tom Sargent student, right? I was a Tom Sargent student, absolutely. And the idea there was inflation is a monetary phenomena and too much money causes inflation. And so every week the Federal Reserve would publish the latest M1 number and we would react to it. Oh, M1 was up $5 billion. We've got to raise interest rates. Well, what we would say is we'd pull uh, reserves out and that would cause interest rates to go up. It was backwards looking. It was, as a young economist, I realized how crazy it was because you, you'd get to the end of the year, you'd have new seasonally adjusted numbers and that 5 billion blip that you reacted to back then, gone because you got different numbers and seasonal adjustment and everything. So it was all kind of noise. And today, you know, the Fed doesn't look backwards at money supply numbers. It looks forward at everything, but in particular, it looks forward to what's called break-even inflation, which is a market signal that comes from the pricing of real return bonds, TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, versus nominal bonds. And by looking at that difference in price, you can see what the market expects uh, inflation to be. And the Fed looks at that number, incorporates all forward-looking information. And the Fed then says, yeah, we're going to target a 2% inflation and we're going to tighten if we need to, to uh, hit that target. And then when they see five-year break-even inflation going up from 2% to 3 or 4%, they say, all right, we've got a problem. And they tighten. And it gives them credibility. They've built this credibility up over decades. And now, as we've seen, the market has reacted much more quickly and strongly to the Fed response because the Fed has credibility. And so the idea here would be issue this bond, have the market reveal what the expected carbon price is. And if it is too low, then, you know, you've got a credibility problem and you take actions and that builds up credibility over time. And that's how we can get investors to make the investments that we need them to make in low carbon solutions. Well, it seems like other types of securities would help us to maybe aggregate all of this information we have about climate risk, right? So one of the biggest problems is that decision makers don't really know what the climate risk is. 
insurance companies have been issuing these disaster bonds for a long time, and they seem to be great ways to figure out what the crowd thinks the probability of a hurricane is and, and so forth. Why don't we have more climate-linked securities that would help us to do better forecasting? Yeah, no, I think we should. I agree with you. And those catastrophe bonds are out there and people do invest in them. But the main problem is that insurers are pulling back from these climate-related risks. And in part, it's because they're increasing so much that the insurance industry is not really prepared for this in a lot of different ways. I was part of a President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology working group that published a report this past spring on extreme weather and financial risk. And one of the things that we pointed out is that the weather has changed. It's not just going to change, it's already changed. And primarily in the tails, people think of uh, climate change as being an increase in temperature on average. Yeah. And it is an increase in average, but much more than the small increase in the average temperature is the fact that there's more energy in the system and therefore more extremes along every dimension. Heat, cold, drought, wildfires, sea level rise, storm surge, wind speed, hailstorms, you name it. And along every one of those dimensions, the 100-year event is happening much more frequently. And the 100-year event is a special type of event because that's the event that you're not prepared for. Building codes, your human experience. It's like if something happens every five years or every 10 years, you're going to be prepared for it. Uh, it's going to be in the building codes and so on. It's when you get to the one in a hundred year event, it, it wipes you out. And the problem is that uh, it's no longer one in a hundred years along all these different dimensions. And so the insurance companies realize this. And they say, basically, to the insurance regulators, insurance is all regulated state by state, the probability, I live in California, the probability of wildfires here in California is a lot higher than it used to be. And the insurance regulator says, how do you know that? And you go, well, well just look what happened last year. And they go, yeah, but you can't look at one year. You got to look at 20 years. And you go, yeah, but it's been increasing. And they're like, how do you know? Where, where, well, and you say, well, I've got this model. How do you know the model's right? Because there's five different models. And, and that is the problem. The models are not really accurate. Who knows how accurate they are? They're different models. They all have different biases. And so at the end of the day, no one really knows what the risk is. The insurance company wants to be conservative and the regulator wants to be affordable. And so you end up, the regulator says, no, you can't quadruple your insurance rates. And the insurance company says, all right, I'm out of here. People think the insurance companies are going to be in trouble. No, they're not going to be in trouble. They're not taking the risk. Who's in trouble are the people who want to buy insurance, who want to live in that area. They're the ones who won't be able to afford it. And that's what we've seen in a lot of different places. Florida, because of the hurricanes, you can't get private insurance now. So what you have is the state comes in runs a state program, but they really, they can't solve the problem. The problem is it's a lot more risky. So they can provide insurance that's less coverage and at a higher price. And people then stop getting the insurance and then it falls on the federal government. So you got all these potential financial risks that ultimately are not being addressed 
because the climate has changed. And so in my neighborhood in particular, there is no private earthquake insurance, only state issued. And most of my neighbors are having their fire insurance canceled as well. And so it makes risk management very difficult. It essentially encourages you just to lever up the heck out of your house so that if something bad happens, you can hand the keys to the bank, which you're allowed to do here in, in California. Yeah. So we are not addressing that. That is a systemic problem. And, it, you know, it's only going to get worse. That we can predict. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we know with a pretty good idea that sea level rise is going to continue. In fact, it's going to accelerate over the next 20, 30 years. What our actions today are really determining is what's going to happen 30, 40, 50 years from now. So what are our grandkids? What kind of world are they going to live in? And sadly, we're failing this test very badly. I mean, I think one of the key insights is that finance people only care about systematic risk. I mean, they care about idiosyncratic risk to the extent that you can diversify it away. But I mean, so what aspects of climate risk fall into the category of diversifiable and what categories can you not diversify? Well, local risks would be diversifiable. And that's why insurance is a good thing. We should have insurance. We should mutualize that risk. But it is the, the systematic risk is what can't be diversified. And the systematic risk is going to be increasing over time, not just from the physical risks of climate, but also some of these other risks that will occur. Things like disease, things like conflict, climate-related immigration. So those are all things that ultimately are going to fall onto the federal government. And it's, it's hard to predict. There is a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future. But as we were discussing before, as a risk manager, you got to think about and be prepared for those worst case scenarios. And we're not. We're not reacting. We're not pricing the risk. Nowhere near where it ought to be priced. Now, when I say that, by the way, Greg, we have to be fair here. Europe has priced the risk very much more than we have. It, it, when you look at European countries, Spain, UK, Germany, France, they all have very strong incentives to reduce emissions. They have their emissions trading system that has prices around $90 a ton, I think. And then they've got strong taxes on diesel and other fossil fuels. So you add it up, they've got a price on carbon, essentially well over $100 a ton. And in the U.S., we don't have any real price on carbon. We have gasoline taxes that when we look average across all of our emissions, it's about $18 a ton. It's a tenth of what it should be. And then we were talking about the UAE before. There, they have subsidies for gasoline. That's the only policy they have. So in effect, they have a negative price on pollution of, of about $70 a ton. So there's no harmonization. The global average price is actually right on top of the U.S. at $18 a ton, which is an order of magnitude too low, and it's across the board. And that's why we've got a $7 or $11 trillion, use the number you want, subsidy, because we're not pricing the externality. Every economist in the world knows we ought to be doing it, and it's just a political problem. Well, look, everybody hates taxes, but everybody loves subsidies. So if we wanted to get something like a carbon tax through, would we have to do it in such a way that 
there would be immediate beneficiaries other than the the federal government. I mean, if we, for instance, paid people for carbon capture, right, would that generate an entire new industry that would flourish with the this dissemination of these carbon taxes? Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. Incentives come in all different forms and the IRA is a bunch of subsidies and people do love subsidies and it is creating a lot of movement and a lot of investment, but you know, we just can't afford it. Like again, the subsidy to fossil fuel in the U.S. is an order of magnitude bigger than our piddling subsidies to low carbon investments. And then you say, well, why don't we do more? It's because who's going to pay for it? Ultimately, it's the taxpayers. And so that's why people don't like taxes. And that's why we can't subsidize our way out of this. We've just got to create the incentives. If you ask people, should polluters pay, you know, it gets like an 80% or 90% approval rating. So I'm sure we're going to get there, but it's a tough political hurdle to get over. That's the problem. Now, when you discuss what the price of carbon should be, the range is, is all over the map. How can we, if, I mean, just imagine a, a world where you, you have a carbon tax and you, the, the pricing is set by some central planner, right? It has to be, right? In, in, unless you have carbon capture and unless you have a supply and a demand set up, you're going to have some central planner that's deciding on the price. How could we get that price right? I mean, what sorts of pieces of information would we have to plug in and are we in a place where we can come up with some reasonable estimates uh, about what would make sense? Yeah, it's, it's a tough problem, you know, and one that I've worked on. We don't have good models, and those models have a lot of uncertainty as to what the right parameters are and so on. And I think we just have to buy into that and recognize that we aren't going to have a right answer. There is no right answer. And so the uncertainty means Again, as we've discussed, you have to err on the side of caution. We have to have a price that's high enough today that we react very strongly. And then we have to respond to new information. We shall see if things are worse than we expect and have to raise that price. The price should be high enough, though, right today, that we expect to solve the problem. And we expect the price to come down as the uncertainty is resolved over time. That's how high it should be, that we expect it to come down over time. That's pretty high. Well, Bob, thanks so much for joining me. I do think it's there's a lot of insight that finance folks can bring to this conversation. And so I appreciate you doing the dirty work. And this book here, Modern Investment Management, still a classic. Check it out, but also check out all of your recent research, including the report that you did with the CFTC. And then, of course, this presidential report that you did just earlier this year. So thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Nice talking to you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.